0: So thanks for being on the podcast today, Anthony. Thank you for having me. So yeah, if you just give us a little bit of background on you, you published a book recently called The Assumption of Debt. And uh, yeah, just before we begin, just maybe give us a bit of a background on you. Yeah, uh, my name's Anthony. I'm a Cuban-American literary
1: writer, and I'm a master's uh, philosophy student at the University of
0: New Mexico. So actually, do you you see yourself as a philosopher or a writer or both? Both.
1: Um, I see myself as a literary philosopher. I know that may sound strange, but I think that's the best way to put it. I see myself akin to Holderlin in that sort
0: of regard. Were you always like a writer from a very young age? Or where did the tendency to ask philosophical questions come from, do you think? Um you know,
1: the philosophical questions came before the writing. Um, I think I was just always an inquisitive uh, person. I was told as a little kid, I was always the type of person to go up to anyone and everyone and just start engaging in conversations, asking questions, trying to get to know them. So I think that began first. I mean, the very first job I wanted as a little, little kid, it was a paleontologist. So I always wanted to sort of dig and investigate. So obviously that's gone a very different sort of Realm of investigation, less sort of uh, physical and scientific per se, but nonetheless, I think that tendency is still there.
0: Yeah. So you you did an undergraduate in history, was it or was that you is correct?
1: It? Yes, I did my undergraduate in history at the University of Central
0: Florida. And did you find like that was a good outlet for your philosophical inquiries as a degree in history or.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, not the history itself necessarily, but also not. Um, But around that time when I was taking my bachelor's is when my uh, interest shifted more towards uh, strict philosophy. You know, uh, philosophy is one of those fields that um, kind of not a lot of people know about or know well or know what it is and often gets like laughed at. It's, uh, you know, the Mm -hmm. joke is often and this is unfortunate that the joke is often, oh, the degrees that make no money are gender studies philosophy and underwater basket weaving. So it was that sort of situation going on, but I'd never realized that I was actually doing philosophy, you know, my whole life and through my inquiry and in my style of investigation. So, yeah, and so I still have a historical background uh, up to, you know, the point where I could teach a high school history course, you know, no sweat, but um, yeah, I just realized during that time period that uh, as much as I love history, no just to that field or anything along those lines, I just realized I had this greater love and interest
0: towards uh, philosophy. Why do you think there's a perception in general society of philosophy being something that isn't to be taken seriously? There's nothing valuable inherent in philosophy.
1: Yeah, and uh, certainly my, um, you know, I actually, uh, I had a, I want to say professor, but that's not the right word, a teacher of mine. Um, who has his doctorate, which is, you know, why I want, he's a a doctorate of theology. And uh, and he actually wrote a live recommendation of mine for me to come to the University of New Mexico. And, you know, I kind of gave him updates on what I was doing, because, you know, I still keep in touch with him. And, you know, he was talking about how uh, Christianity could defeat any philosophy, right? So I, you know, I went to a Christian school. And so the mentality around philosophy was that Um, even though obviously that's not true. You have guys like Aquinas, Boethius, obviously so on and so forth, many Christian philosophers who incorporate these things. At least the mentality in my school was that philosophy was this thing that would attempt to undermine uh, Christianity and Christian values. And so it was not one of those things I was exposed to. Well, I took one uh, high school history class and we watched the movie God's Not Dead. And it was just a very bad portrayal of just atheism like how most i'm not I'm not saying that it's impossible for that sort of atheist to exist but that's not the majority of atheists and like it, it's good to be more charitable with um these positions and and that philosophy class was basically just not very charitable to the other philosophies and other points of views um and so that's sort of the schooling environment i grew up with philosophically
0: what the So you're you're studying a master's in philosophy. How Mm -hmm. do you find the balance between studying philosophers and taking on their thoughts and letting it inform your thinking and having your own sense of inquiring after things that you are just curious about yourself?
1: Yeah, I see the tendency amongst amongst a lot of my peers to um, basically be uh, reiterators of their favorite thinkers whether it doesn't matter who they are right and I think we all have these tendencies of course like we adopt ideas but I think for myself I think one advantage I have over my other philosophical peers is I came in with a historical background so I came in um you know not like just sticking with the philosophy train like I you know I I, I didn't uh I entered the culture a little bit late I guess to say so I had that advantage and I think secondarily um I try to be very investigatory. I try to like tackle any and all assumptions, you know, as per the title of my book. Like I, I so I keep myself in check and that kind of root comes from um, my first big assumption, at least to me, again, I could still be wrong, but the um, the assumption of the truth of Christianity, at least for me, falling apart and then just being very, uh, maybe even Overly wary of like ensuring that I don't have any assumptions as a result, but that doesn't mean I don't have favorite philosophers and thinkers. I just, you know, I just uh, take them for what I think they are and are not.
0: What type? What sort of an age were you when the assumption of Christianity, the true Christian Christianity, starting to fall apart? What type of age were you then? When
1: yeah, I was around. Mm-hmm. Well, at least uh, for the United States standards, fifth grade. You know. I had to have been like so That's around like 10 um 10 11 so yeah that's when that uh fell apart for me um yeah
0: is that when the world of assumptions opened up to you or was it further before that okay no that
1: so before i was very investigatory but it was more like i would investigate what was given to me right so i was given paleontology books i really took on to those geography books like just i would just i was just a sponge a sponge of knowledge and, you know, I just had trust in the people around me that they were giving me um, the truth, right? And there was never anyone who was telling me otherwise about like Christianity, as per example. Um, you know, uh, even though my mom and dad were not religious, they didn't really do anything to whack down Christianity. Meanwhile, um, you know, a lot of my, ex- uh, not extended family, but uh, just outside of like the nuclear family unit, you know, uh, we're practitioners of Christianity. I went to Christian schools all my life, like literally beginning from like preschool. I went to Lutheran, then I went straight into a Presbyterian school. So um, the uh, you know Jesus as Lord and Savior was just never uh, was never questioned. It was just one of those things that's it was just as true for me as
0: was the uh, paleontology and geography of the world. Mm. So the assumption of debt. When did you start first thinking about that seriously?
1: Yeah, um, I started thinking about that uh, a little less than a year ago uh, when I was moving out here to Albuquerque from Miami, Florida, and the thought came in mind in New Orleans. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it just popped into my head because I just do a lot of thinking about random stuff. And the thought came to my head, okay, what's the most common assumption in the world? Ah, it's that we're guaranteed to die and it just went from there and um, I already had some old uh, poems so talking about death that were published. So I just kind of incorporated like this new line of thought old poems and just kind of was able to meld it into a um, sporadic but coherent work. I guess is the best okay. way to put my uh, put this book
0: uh, that kind book. of connects to what I was going to ask you next was. Um can you think of any key assumptions before the assumption of debt that got you to question the assumption of date?
1: um well i think in terms of key assumptions i guess it's more like what is knowledge right like i think that's along the lines of what worked me there but i honestly um in this case scenario it's not like i had this big you know, thought train working up like, ah, what is assumption? This is, and it just kind of mm-hmm. came very uh, suddenly, I guess, in a sense. Obviously, of course, I've had other assumptions in my life, like, you know, political assumptions and obviously Christian assumptions. But I think that sort of mentality of opening myself up to questioning assumptions led to questioning this assumption. It wasn't necessarily like, you know, um, filling out a syllogism, it was just more along the lines of, uh, I have this general juxtaposition, anyways and um this came about through my just investigatory
0: tendencies so like before when you before you started questioning the assumption of death did you feel like it was something you feared more than it needed to be feared i mean i
1: i can say for myself i'm very sporadic when it comes to the fear of death it's either something i have just I'm completely fearless, or I'm just rattled with anxiety about it, right? And I flip between the two modes, and it's very mood um, dependent. So, and then I don't think um, that has necessarily gone away with me um, writing this, although I have been told by others it's helped them in that um, in that regard. I just think for me, just my personal psychology, I think um, you know, I I, I fluctuate between uh, a lot of tendencies of. Uh, like very like solid and strong within myself and to the complete opposite and so I think you know that sort of comes with it but you know overall I think um you know taking on uh, death as an assumption in its variety of definitions can be relieving for people uh, both assumingly and from what I've been told uh personally.
0: So like when you're questioning the assumption of debt are you questioning the entirety of it like it's not just the thought of it you're questioning are you questioning like the body actually dying here in art where's is the is there death
1: any... in in every yeah. capacity right so any any understanding of death is being questioned here however um the main one i think is important and it's pointed out in the um uh, section where i counter heidegger it's more um that i i i death more with Heidegger's definition of demise, which is a wiping of all existence, right? So for me personally, that's how I view death, right? It's like the ceasing of existence in its totality, right? Whereas opposed to other people view uh, death differently. Obviously, I think when, um, you know, uh, let's say someone who believes in afterlife, right? They, uh, you know, assume a bodily death, but they don't assume a soul death or a spiritual death or whatever you want to call it. But I think uh, even that bodily death, that's an assumption, you know, or having spiritual death, can, you know, can be an assumption, right? So I'm working through all these, uh, the uh, the assumption of death, I think the most important one is the ceasing of existence, but I do counter the other ones because I think they're also assumptive.
0: Which part do you find the most challenging? Because for me personally, I haven't put a lot of thought into the assumption of death but i would find the physical realm the body dying as the most challenging to think about or yeah, yeah think I, about frame I,
1: yeah i think that's for a lot of people but um the way i think about it is like this right like we can we have analogs right so let's take the uh, the immortal jellyfish right right the, that jellyfish does not suffer from uh, cancer it doesn't it doesn't deteriorate obviously they can die because they can be whacked out and stuff like that but the the uh, biological capability for immortality is already there, right? Obviously, does our biology have it at this point in time? Who's to say, who knows? Maybe there's some medicine that can unlock it, maybe not. So a lot of the bodily stuff I think is more, um, uh, I think I think people struggle with it out of a lack of imagination. I know that may sound like a strange way to put it, but um, I don't think, I think a lot of people have shunned out the 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 possibility just because they've seen everyone else die around them. But I think the problem is, is that I think, you know, I, you know, we have a lot of uh, similarities in our features, or at least what we perceive to be similarities in our features, right? And uh, let's say you were to croak right in front of me, it's a pretty safe bet that I could do the same, right? So it's not saying that, that bodily death or any assumption, it's a bad assumption, right? It's not to say it's a, not a well-grounded assumption, um, but in regards to bodily death, The two assumptions are the issues of imagination and theoretical possibility with how we could extend our bodily existence. And the second being that um, assuming that uh, you, like all other people, will die like all other people, assuming that you almost are those other people. When you are not, you are a separate entity from those people, and therefore your functionality may not be the same. As unlikely as it may be, it may not be the same
0: okay now that's an interesting point with the jellyfish. i didn't actually know that i was looking to that the it, so they have the immortality in their genes which is obviously they can get still get killed um yeah go yeah but they don't they them. don't
1: they don't suffer from because the the main issue with bodily um uh is is the degradation of the body right like our mm. cells degenerate and also there's the issue of cancer right the the immortal jellyfish does not have that issue right that's what aging comes from it's the uh, deterioration of cells so if cells don't deteriorate you're fine <laughs>
0: mm. yeah um so what are so i think a part of the reason why philosophy isn't taken seriously by the masses maybe is because they don't necessarily see the implications of how it changes how you interact with the world so from this assumption of dead what have been some of the implications in your life and the changes in how you actually interact and perceive the world from it?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, the byproduct is more a matter of uh, guilt, as oddly as that may sound, right? Um, Because guilt is it? Yes, guilt is it? Yes. Because the way I see it, right, is that uh, guilt becomes more important in an immortal life, right because if you die your guilt will go away at some point right like you will not always have to carry the burden of one's guilt or one's regret and so on and so forth but in in an immortal life like this is something that you will always have to carry with you if you like keep it on you right Mm. and so for me um, I see a psychological value in uh, my own work and in philosophy in just the way I go about philosophy in general right um I mean, not that I don't uh, engage in questions of metaphysics or epistemology in this, but I think for me, um, I more importantly care about the uh, the psychology behind philosophical implications, and that's sort of I what I hope people get out of this is um, a, a uh, psychological understanding, and hopefully one that improves uh, their. You know their psychological
0: well-being. So, so with the, so does it does it mean that because there's this idea of immortality, the body isn't going to decay, the emotions, the problems are going to be there. Does that make you confront them in your day-to-day life then, because of that, or what's the actual practicality of? Um, how your life changes because you're viewing your life as something that's potentially immortal rather than finite and mortal?
1: Yeah, um, because you, because you're in, right, because the things you do and you will always exist in some capacity, right? So if you exist in some capacity, therefore your impact will always be, and therefore that impact is very important. Right, it just stresses the greater importance of this impact if it does not go away. You cannot, um, okay. you cannot not be a part of it. So I think it just stresses the importance of how we engage within reality. How
0: do you think of impact?
1: I, um, well, I mean, impact can be as simple as uh, you know a cougar you know walking on a trail. Impact can be as simple as thinking about friends. Like impact doesn't have to be something grand or spectacular impact is simply just you know what is uh pressed upon right
0: and does that connect to legacy for you as well like your impact leads to legacy
1: yes that legacy isn't a matter of memory but a matter of like impact right obviously some impacts are more felt quote unquote right like the the mountain lion you know walking on a trail uh, me thinking about the tv show friends right those things are less felt than alexander the great you know conquering uh you know the Achaemenid persians and less felt than you know the salt march of gandhi right for example but um nonetheless these are both equal in the sense that they are impacts and therefore are a part of um one's legacy because they will always have uh, been right the impact is just the fact that like um it occurred within a time, space, context, et cetera. That is the
0: impact. Does that tie in with the assumption of death, transcending death, that the impact can be infinite? Is that part of this? or?
1: Well, yeah, like once, once there's an impact, that impact will have always have been, right? So in a sense, the, I think the best way to get, the, the, I think the most solid thing for sure that we have that beats the assumption of death is legacy right And not legacy is memory, but legacy is impact, because that impact will have always have been, right? So therefore you will always in some way,
0: Some way live on.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, let's go back to guilt. You the passage as well about guilt is a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Just expand that, like how did you how did, did you notice that within yourself? How did you notice just, uh, that guilt can become a pleasure that's something we're addicted to?
1: Yeah, I mean, in part, um, you know, it is, a, it is a play on words, right, um, and I think so, it, I think it began as something more poetic, trying to like play on that, on that sort of, you know, phrase like guilty pleasure, but I kind of realized that, um, you know, kind of the whole uh, Catholic confessionals, that it kind of works like that, right, where, you know, you go to get your fix of guilt to sort of alleviate the, the greater burden of whatever is actually troubling, troubling you, right? Like people, that guilt is a pleasure sometimes in of itself and sometimes even comparatively, right? In the sense that like, it's sometimes better to feel guilty, more pleasurable to feel guilty than to actually confront the issue at hand, right? Uh, guilt is easier to confront. It's easier to make one feel better as opposed to actually dealing with the problem, right? That's why, I, for example, I use, uh, uh, I would well, I will use a metaphor that a lot of people when they're feeling down will start drinking, right? It's easier to just drink and use that as a sort of medicine to alleviate oneself in a temporary sense than as opposed to confronting the problem. And then people become addicted to, to that sense of guilt rather than actually confront the problems before then. They use guilt in the same way they use alcohol in dealing with uh, problems
0: you know there when when somebody's avoiding confronting the problem and they're giving into the guilt and maybe in some way makes them feel like a good person for feeling guilty about something but is there also an element of they mightn't even know what they're avoiding there they're so kind of deep in denial that they don't even know what it is anymore
1: right because it it loosens that burden right because you're because you become concentrated on the guilt Hmm. therefore you've alleviated the burden of like what is actually before you but the problem is you have not actually alleviated that right that's why there's this common tendency for people in catholic confessionals to return with the same confessions oh father i have sinned i have committed sins of the flesh right whatever you know and then that person will come back week after week after week after week with the exact same confession
0: yeah and it doesn't do anything it's just kind of repeats all the time yeah it's like uh just being in a pattern yeah right
1: right like how heroin people get stuck in that sort of cycle of like uh you know it's like i i, I obviously i i'm not going to say that guilt is equivalent to heroin in like a literal sense but i think mm. it's a it's a strong and dramatic uh metaphor because i think it really gets the uh the point across about how um how i think Guilt is something that's unnecessary, right? Like, and as you said before, like, oh, people, you know, you know, they talk about having guilt, like, ah, yes, it makes me feel like a good person. Well, it, but it it doesn't because it doesn't one solve the like it doesn't solve the thing that like was quote unquote bad to the person, and it you know it it's almost like this weird obligatory thing that doesn't actually solve any issues, doesn't improve oneself. It just it just just kind of lashes at. Um, oneself and oftentimes unnecessarily, right? Like there's plenty of things that people feel guilty over that aren't inherently bad. So hmm. it's it's a coping mechanism more than anything else, or an outlet, or you know, these sorts of things. But I certainly don't think guilt has ever solved a single problem and never will.
0: Yeah, it's kind of gives you more the illusion of um feeling like a good person. There's kind of the martyr image in your mind of or just kind of even the image of uh living a tough life and a sacrificial life and gets you rewards in an afterlife or something like that there's a lot of cloudy kind of thinking i think associated with it
1: yeah i mean for sure i think um you know the the i mean nietzsche points this out very well that to uh that the sense of resentment uh towards um the the elites right like you may have yours now but we will get revenge on you when we are laughing at you from heaven and you are in hell right yeah. um obviously i'm paraphrasing that's not exactly but you know you do um you see that a lot that sort of resentment emerge in paul not really in jesus himself but mostly in um in the apostle paul is where these sorts of you know things get up and kind of infect our western culture where we become a very resentful uh guilt-ridden Uh, culture and the uh, I think that's something that needs to be shoved to the wayside and you think would be shoved to the wayside with secularism but that hasn't been happening right Um, you know we've uh, we've kept those sorts of Christian uh, uh, values morals and ethics um, despite uh, you know murdering God and you know as as Nietzsche also says Hmm. and so what I think is the problem is like we want like i think there's nothing wrong with many of the christian values and you know i've kept uh, some of them myself because i think some of them are like ones i preferentially agree with
0: hmm.
1: i think the problem is is that like guilt doesn't help you help people right like one of the one of the best ways to help people is honestly pretty coldly right if you um one of the best organizations for helping people out is peter singer's the life you can save there's no sense of guilt there it's just very cold it's like look What you should do, just live your life as you live it, maximize your resources, your income, et cetera, like just do that sort of stuff. I'm not saying like you don't have to chase riches, but just live your normal life. The best thing you can give is resources, which is money to others, right? Your time is nice and all, but um, and obviously some people do need to give time to get resources out. But the point being is that that what's going to actually impact and help people the most is not this sense of guilt and feeling woeful and um, you know, for others or even for, or for yourself. It's look, this person's blind, they need medicine, donate to this effective organization that already has volunteers, that already has you know, individuals helping out, that's, ar- you know, that's already doing good work. All they need is more resources to get that stuff out. That's how you can help the most. Just live your life and use that productivity to give to others who are already doing the wonderful work of giving, right? And that's cold. There's no like, like it doesn't make you a good person. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a careful person in the sense of, ah, yes, that person shouldn't be blind. Ah, I give 20 bucks. I can prevent a blind person. Great. Like, it, it, you know, it's like, and, and honestly, it's, it's often effective in goodness to be like, you know, to be um, less emotional because you're able to, actually calculate how to assist and help people the best as opposed to this guilt-ridden obligatory I should etc etc
0: yeah I think it's you can take like the uh getting away the emotion out of it and, and like practically go about things in terms of helping others because I think part of the problem is like projecting your own feelings onto other people and I think you, when you can start removing that, you can see things a bit more objectively and clearly and not assume things, I suppose, as much. But um, just going back to the assumption of death, there's, there's one thing that's occurred to me over the years. I haven't expanded on it much, though. It's like, mm. how do I know I haven't died already? That, <laughs> did that, uh, did <laughs> well, that no, come how, to my for
1: Yeah, I mean, but the but the question being is that, OK,
0: um, you're here, though, yeah? Well, I thought about this as well in terms of, say, if there's, if everybody's experiencing a different version of reality and you've mm-hmm. actually died in their reality already but you just don't know it because you just got a little different copy of reality
1: right but yeah but but the question there would be okay that would be i guess most akin to like reincarnation right like so you're you're not dead <laughs> right <laughs> like i like I, I really don't see the problem here it's like like you're not dead like you you did not even die in that capacity like oh i died in another reality well no you, no you didn't you're in reality you're not dead like what what other the reality would there be like it, right right like a, there's no the Plato's world of forms isn't more or less real than the earth it's just different right mm. the matrix is not more or less real it's just different so you die you know like there's those, there's always those movies like you die in the game you die in real life like no you're just dead in both you're just dead in reality you're just you know when you're just dead so um yeah i i find that kind of funny where people are like oh i die here but like but you're still alive it's like no you, you didn't die then
0: you're what i found with that is that i haven't expanded that much but it kind of takes the charge out of this kind of when i hadn't even thought about that i had this kind of assumption that that's going to be really painful and it's going to be like uh, a complete end to everything nothingness mm-hmm. but when i thought of it like that it was just like how do i know for sure it's going to be like that i could just be i could be dead tomorrow and like in a different reality and i wouldn't know any different um right. it kind of makes it feel a bit lighter for me when i thought about that and i can't prove either of those ideas wrong or right i kind of um
1: yeah no for sure like it that's i guess that's more akin to like at least the way i see it like that's more akin to again like a reincarnation thing the way i see it like okay um you die in this, this lifetime but you carry on to the next um You know, and so on and so forth, right? So, um, I'm not anti pro reincarnation, I think it's a possibility, but um, you know, that's that's a tough thing to say of how it would work, what the mechanisms would be, etc. But
0: Hmm.
1: yeah, for sure, I I think again, like I don't, you know, I don't even diss the idea of an afterlife, right? As someone who's no longer Christian, I'm not even, um, like I'm I'm an agnostic individual, I, I don't know in this regard, there could be reincarnation, could be afterlife, could be the eternal recurrence could just be um you know there's there's all sorts of variety of ways to get out of um to live is to die right and i think a lot of people often even hold contradictory notions where it's like ah yes i'm going to reincarnate but also i'm going to die well no you're not dying you're just restarting
0: okay so where are you at now in your thinking process are you still elaborating on this like on the assumption of debt or have you moved on to something else now or or yeah
1: i'm yeah i'm gonna move on to other uh i think important topics i think the one consistency that i hope for i mean i I can't i don't know where i'm gonna go from here but the thing that i want to do the most is take a a hammer and sort of smash the biggest assumptions we have um you know uh, philosophically or just you know or the biggest assumptions in society and just kind of take them apart one by one by one. Um, and so I think starting off here is a good point, because I think this is the biggest assumption um, I will tackle, which is, you know, living guarantees death. And It's a hard one for people because um, even then, I think, you know, a lot of people will read this and may not agree with that premise, but I think may um, get something interesting or find a nice poem or something along those lines. But yeah, my goal is to just take very, big assumptions in terms of big not in the sense of uh, importance but big in terms of their commonality and just you know hammer them hammer them out hammer them out hammer them out and more of a sledgehammer style not a um, you know not a little home deeper hammer where you're just putting up a picture
0: so do you have any fear around like the implications of philosophy in your life like when you actually see things and it changes your life dramatically um
1: i mean i think Uh, the biggest change in my life has been well not the biggest I should uh, scratch that Um, I think one of the biggest changes in my life has been the um, the beginning of the philosophical pursuit with the collapse of Christianity as a meaning maker for me right Mm. and it has made me obsessive with not wanting to fall into assumptions which uh, has yielded a lot of reward and a lot of just um, what's the word I'm looking for a lot of like uncertainty in my own head so it's like it It comes with, I think, what I would perceive and preferentially as personal goods and bads. But overall, I mean, this is something I do, you know, I highly, highly, highly enjoy engaging in the work of philosophy and you know, being um, someone who uh, will write philosophy and continue to uh, do so. And so, yeah, it, for me, overall, you know I want to be honest with myself about like how, you know, sometimes, I can overthink and sometimes i become obsessive on like what i actually know and so on and so forth but it's also something that's quite enjoyable for me so i wouldn't have it um overall any other way maybe i mean if i could i'd maybe change a little pinpoints but you know mm-hmm. i i would never want to erase philosophy as a part of my existence
0: yeah uh, how do you deal with uncertainty because a large part of philosophy is uncertainty because even what you're getting at here i get the sense from you that you've come to realizations around the assumption of dip but you haven't got like a concrete this is my final thesis on it
1: yeah i feel like i only uh deal in uncertainty right um and again it comes from just my personal psychology and experiences right like i, I only deal in uncertainties okay i don't really have a, a system i'm trying to set up it's just more along the lines of about it right i think that's that's i guess if i have a system it's just think about it right like don't don't rush into conclusions that doesn't mean like obviously we have to move on and live our lives and you can't yeah decide. you know i'm not i'm not a skeptic necessarily but um you know even though i used to be i used to be a skeptic it was a real problem and that's not what's that
0: sort a of problem it's, it's, it's not a being a skeptic bring in your life like what sort of pain points do you have
1: it it brought to the point where. Uh, you know i couldn't i couldn't really start from anywhere and really work from anything right like when i was able to ignore my skepticism like obviously i was able to live my life play basketball etc but it was one of these things where it's like it caused a lot of uh, anxiousness and sort of.
0: with the skepticism is that you're because you're skeptical of everything you've nothing to begin anything with is that is that what you're saying there
1: well yeah obviously i was beginning and you know i wasn't living like a skeptic no one actually can but it's more along the lines of um, of like, right? Like when I had these, like it would lead to a lot of like crises of like, you know, epistemological crises, you know, like there's the existential crisis, which is crisis of meaning. And then like I'd have that with the epistemological equivalent quite, quite often. Um, and just this worry about, um, you know, uh, not collapse of meaning, but just, uh, you know, like, how could I know and what could I know and you know I don't have a very traditional definition of knowledge per se um because even my definition of knowledge isn't about absolute certainty right I don't I don't believe we can uh, like um I mean I'm sure that I'm sure that like the thing I the only like I had like I can only really have like matters of faith when it comes to um, knowledge change, right I've equivocated knowledge to faith and truth is something else that can't be made certain, right? Like there, like I have faith that there is truth out there that there is a sense of certainty. But even like even um, you know even the form of knowledge I've taken is still with uncertainties. But at least allows me to start somewhere because through faith it's a matter of trust, right? I can you know I could trust that I exist. I can trust that the building I'm in is not going to collapse. I can trust that our internet connection is going to work and that this uh, Zoom meeting isn't going to drop. So. Mm-hmm. Right, so I've taken a very weird approach, because I think typically, um, at least in Christian theology, like faith is a form of knowledge, and I'm just, and I've kind of flipped down its head. It's like, no, knowledge is a matter of faith, and that's, that's how I see it, that we don't, um, that the things we know are always going to come with a level of uncertainty, and that's okay, and you can move forward from that with a sense of trust.
0: That's a good way of saying it. knowledge is a matter of faith, so does that, is that like allowing you not to cling to the knowledge as concrete then when it's a yeah. matter of fate? It?
1: And that was the big struggle with my skepticism, right? Like where, because of the definition of using of knowledge, I was thinking of knowledge as absolute certainty, right? Mm. But I did realize very linguistically that, oh no, people make knowledge claims all the time without certainty or make knowledge claims feeling certain, but they're making certain knowledge claims about things that aren't certainly true. like. Um, you know, Barack Obama is going to commit martial law and become the president again. Like, mm. this is an actual American conspiracy theory that yeah. uh, occurred in some circles. And like, right, the people who were projecting that were like, they, they knew it was going to happen. But that doesn't mean there was any certainty of like, it corresponding to reality. There was only a uh, perceived trust and faith in that Barack Obama was going to commit martial law. Mm right? I don't see knowledge as corresponding to truth. I see knowledge corresponding to trust.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of putting it. You can hold that a bit more lightly and it's open to change and grow and evolve what you're thinking like. Yeah. That's so, no, good. Yeah. Um, in terms of just people in your life, how important have, like, have you, like, because like what you're talking about is very deep and I even know that generally in society, if you ask people what their thoughts are on dip, they'd have this kind of like, this, that's more but i don't want to go there or you're weird or whatever how have you um yeah like how, how has your life been in terms of like people who kind of get where you're coming from or just maybe being challenged by being in settings where people don't ask these deeper questions of life
1: i think everyone in my life has kind of known me as that type of person anyways okay um i think some people you know were kind of like what the hell <laughs> 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 what is this? this this is what you're going to pick to write about like death of all things really yeah. like I just don't have any discomfort with it because I think at the end of the day for me right um I like to engage in the world for all its variety and for all its uh you know richness and um you know depth and heights that's just that's how I try to live do I succeed I don't know I mean I can I, it's hard to say but at least that's what I attempt to do and so for me it's like touching upon, um, death for me is really the first stepping stone to like really being able to actually live, because I think death is one of these things that really holds people back from life. And so I think if death is something that can be overcome, whether it's, um, you know, in an actual physical sense, or it's in a psychological sense, I think that's an important place to start to actually get into the things and the weeds of life. So yeah, in terms of my family, I mean, I've had, you know, I've had good reactions, surprisingly enough, and a lot of people who've taken this as, you know, I've never thought of it, because I think that's been the main reaction, because it's seen as a taboo, and it's not something a lot of people want to talk about, it comes with discomforts, people avoid thinking about it, so, you know, a lot of my supportive family, I don't think they've, like, uh, you know, necessarily feel obligated, but they've, uh, you know, they've wanted to, obviously, you know, out of, like, love and care for me, um, as their family member or friend or et cetera, et cetera, have engaged with this and have come out of it like, you know, yeah, I I don't think about these things. Right. And that's just the case. Like it's just, a lot of people have almost this gap in death because they're trying so hard to avoid it. And by trying to avoid it, it's kind of, you know, it's being carried on their back um, yeah. almost in a you know and and they can't they can't get over it they can't get over death and that's like hindering their living it's like death is almost like a pair of iron boots trying to go up a mountain
0: yeah no I, I get you it's um it's funny i i think part of why i wouldn't think about these things before was um i didn't know how to think about them like coming back to like having not having fate like it's fate you're led by like that's really um I guess when I think about these topics now, I use more like my feeling and I just kind of follow that and my curiosity without fixating on certain thought patterns. Whereas when I used to fixate on thought patterns, it was it was actually just like, it was very mentally unhealthy for me. Like, because I didn't know how to go about doing it. Because I wasn't taught to think in this way. But um, and when I understood that a bit more, it actually made it like you're saying there, you actually feel a bit more free when you're... When you're finding the balance like you don't like you also don't want your mind to fixate on this stuff but like you're able to i suppose because you haven't got uh, me personally I haven't got like i'm going to come to a fixed idea on something that allows me to just experiment and just more of a playfulness to it because i don't think there's a destination here
1: yeah i think i think be the problem with like you know to to view that openness playfully right that is the problem with i think skeptic me it's like i wasn't viewing that openness as a playful thing, I was viewing that openness as like a scary thing. When really it's it was unknown. Yeah, right. Like I was viewing the unknownness as like dangerous. When really it was just a play place.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. There's also this vulnerability attached to the unknown, as well. That's that's part of why it's
1: sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, every time. Uh, I mean at least the sport I like to play is uh, basketball right every time I'm playing basketball on like a concrete court I could get a concussion obviously it's the most dangerous and most physical sports but the risk is still there I could tear my ACL I could you know break my right there's a there's a there's a vulnerability in that play place in space but at the same time like I've still yielded a lot of um, you know uh, enjoyment from exploring that play place you know like trying to like you know try out new shots and dribble in new ways and you know just you know learn how to play deep right like learning the intricacies of that vulnerable play place right and i think um i think some of our most rewarding play is a vulnerable
0: i think so yeah yeah uh, yeah but it, vulnerability can be challenging but it's, yeah. yeah you're true it's true um you have any like advice for somebody younger who uh has got this drive towards philosophy, and they might be in a place where philosophy isn't deemed as something you should pursue. There's nothing inherently worth in that. Do you have any uh, advice for somebody like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's dependent on, you know, the individual for sure, because if someone wants to keep, um, you know, does not want to do, for example, they enjoy philosophy, um, but they just want to keep it as a hobby, well, keep that as a part of your life, like, you know, like, there's, uh, just keep pursuing it, like, I just recommend books and uh, areas to engage. Um, now, if someone wants to make that their profession, you know, I not, I mean, who am I to, you know, who am I to tell them which way the wind should blow? So, yeah, yeah I guess that's more how I feel, like, I don't, I'm not a, I'm you know, my only advice is, um, you know, you'll figure it out, right, like, whatever it may be, at least for, you know, for I myself, like, You know, I don't know if I'm going to, I actually, I probably won't do a doctorate in philosophy. I'll probably do a doctorate in a different field because I will still be engaged in philosophy. I still will be writing philosophy. I'll still have formal training in philosophy. But for me, I think, um, you know, philosophy is not just the degree program philosophy at a university, right? There's a variety of ways to engage with the creation and extrapolation of understandings and some of the most important are just going out into the world right in, in a sense that um you know some at least for me some most fruitful thought and thinking is just done you know inactivity while while hiking the sandias over here so i just would say um you know to any to any younger person interested in philosophy if if it keeps up your interest. It, why not <laughs> you're not you're not no one you're not you're not living anyone else's life like you're not living your dad's life you're not living your superintendent's life like and you know i made that mistake myself for a long time of just doing um what i thought would like balance making sense and balance not making sense but ultimately I, it's been more rewarding actually following um my eudaimonia or uh, What would you know? What makes me flourish? So Mm. I think if if it's something that's not for the best, maybe you know reconsider how you engage with it. But that's about it.
0: Okay, kind of last you a little bit there, but yeah, at the very end, reconsider how you engage with it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good thing to, to think about. Like it comes in many forms. Like if you or just asking deeper questions of life is philosophy like you can do that without even formally studying it if you don't want to so uh, yeah exactly yeah no that's great talking to you anthony and uh, exploring this topic something i haven't really expanded on too much so it was, it was great to speak to somebody who has
1: yeah for sure i mean i uh, it's it's you know i think the assumption even here in this book is that ah yes it's going to be solely about death but no I, I mean the way i like to view this own work i view it more as a work of guilt and regret oddly enough like like that's that's just the the main lens i view it through even though most of the pieces themselves are about um you know death and overcoming so but yeah no i i i appreciate being had on like this was truly a nice conversation
0: oh thanks anthony okay so that that's it for today thanks uh, again for listening and i will speak to you on the next episode